Welcome to Episode 3, Part 2 of Critical Care in Emergency Medicine, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 7,500 emergency physicians committed to board certification and democratic group practice. This month's podcast features Dr. David Farsi, Chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Mount Sinai Medical Center, Miami Beach, and Dr. David Gajewski, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Hospital of University of Pennsylvania. In part one of this episode, they discussed why hypothermia is important post-cardiac arrest, landmark studies in this area, and inclusion and exclusion criteria. They will continue in part two by addressing the nuts and bolts of the hypothermia process. We're back with Dr. David Gatiaski from the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you again for coming back for a second podcast, especially on the more the nuts and bolts of hypothermia. And I think my first question to you is going to be probably the question everybody has is how do we control shivering? How do we detect shivering? I mean, I know it's not a simple two-minute question, but I think shivering is our biggest challenge in the initiation of uh, hypothermia. Yeah, so I think that's an important question, and I do think that a large number of patients shiver. There's been some talk that you shiver less if you're cooled with an intravascular catheter versus surface cooling, but I think the, the reality is that they're shivering both during induction and I think there's more insight into the fact that people shiver even when they're at 33 degrees at the target temperature. So I guess maybe I'll answer this question and sort of simultaneously just lead you through what we would do to start hypothermia at our institution. Patient comes in, they had an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, they get return of spontaneous circulation. So once we decide that someone is neurologically injured, we will begin the therapy by paralyzing the patient, sedating them, and giving some analgesia. And then we will start infusing two liters of four degrees centigrade chilled normal saline through peripheral IVs. And at that time, we'll also you know, make sure that they're intubated. They have an OG tube, a temp probe Foley. And then we will roll the patient over, put the cooling wraps on, roll them back, make sure they don't have any bed sores or other injuries that would missed, and then we will put the wraps on and start the cooling process with a target temperature of 33 degrees. And we'll use the paralytics then to help prevent shivering, to prevent increased metabolic demand and oxygen consumption, and try to really protect the recently injured brain. The other things that need to be done in that immediate setting obviously are another electrocardiogram or the first post-arrest electrocardiogram to see if this person has a SD segment elevation myocardial infarction. Those people definitely need to go to the cath lab and we should be cognizant of our door to balloon times in them. And then we will also start fairly aggressive hemodynamic resuscitation of the patients with saline infusion, placement of a central venous catheter to measure SCBO2 and CVP and an A-line to measure continuous mean arterial pressures. And we target a mean arterial pressure of 80 to 100 or 110 or so in our post-arrest patients. We also 
typically will get an echocardiogram in the first hour or two after cardiac arrest to see what the initial EF is. And that whole package of care, I think, is what we view as the initiation of post-arrest care centered on hypothermia. And I just want to do point out that Dr. Gajewski is at a huge teaching hospital. Some of our listeners at a community hospital may get scared because uh, at my hospital, getting an echo at two o'clock in the morning on a Saturday is not going to happen. And that's, you know, just want to point out that's not essential to the hypothermia. You know, the basic chilling of the patient is, I think, very, very important. All that care can come later. Going to the cath lab, I think, door to balloon time must be observed, and we need to keep a very close eye, like you said, to getting an EKG, make sure there's not something we can reopen to increase reperfusion. Yeah, and there's no question that the therapy delivered has to be you know, married to the abilities of the institution and that some of what we're doing is not the hypothermia, but a whole bundle of post-arrest care. At my hospital, if it was 2 a.m., we also would not be getting a formal echo from cardiology. Most of the initial echocardiograms that are done on our post-arrest patients are done by emergency physicians who have ultrasound training. But I totally realize that some of the things that we're doing are not available at all institutions, and they don't have to be done to deliver really excellent post-arrest care to patients. So one of the major problems that we're having in induction is shivering. And as I discussed the importance of shivering to my residents, we talk about that it's natural response of the body against cool temperature, but shivering is going to increase the metabolic activity, it's going to increase O2 consumption, and it's going to increase the injury. Now, you're paralyzing everybody, correct? Correct, yes. We will start with boluses of vecuronium and then typically move to a continuous infusion of, of cisatracurium. And there's no new trial that shows paralysis versus deep sedation? I don't know of a specific trial that has randomized people to that. There's been some retrospective analysis of of databases or clinical trials, including we have a paper that's under review looking at retrospective analysis of neuromuscular blockers in post-arrest patients that grew out of a NIH-funded study we did. But there hasn't been any head-to-head trials of you know, for example, propofol versus paralysis and sedation that I'm aware of. I'm not aware of any trial either, but it's, I think the fear, I think we've gone from one side of the spectrum to the other side of the spectrum, just talking about neuromuscular blockade. For many years, we over-paralyzed, and now we're on the side of the spectrum where we don't want to paralyze anybody. And when I tell all my residents is this is, we're paralyzing somebody for 24 hours short-term neuromuscular blockade has not been shown to have a worsening outcome. It's just long-term, over 72 hours, 96 hours, that's shown all sorts of problems associated with neuromuscular blockade. Do you agree with that? Agreed. I I completely agree with that. We are talking 24 to probably 48 hours of neuromuscular blockade at the most in the vast majority of these patients. 
we typically will keep the neuromuscular blockade going until they're rewarmed to 36 degrees, and then we try and get it off unless the person has ongoing issues that are going to require ongoing vent management, and those things would require uh, ongoing paralysis, which would be the rare patient. I should point out that, you know, you don't have to paralyze people or you can paralyze them during induction and then not during maintenance. There's several institutions I know of that that have great protocols that use that approach. You can also use other agents such as infusion of magnesium. People have used Demerol. People have used Buspirone. I'm not a huge fan of agents like Demerol in post-arrest patients who often have an element of acute kidney injury as well. So if we were going to use an agent to help modulate shivering, we would probably use magnesium as our first line agent. And it has to be noted that most of these agents, like Demerol and stuff, don't prevent shivering. They just change the shivering threshold. And you're typically going to have to go through the, the threshold whether you've lowered it or not. So you may need a different approach than just giving a, a pharmacologic agent like that. Right, and I agree. Actually, we don't carry Demerol in my hospital. We use fentanyl. I actually load every patient on magnesium. And I know when you and I talked about magnesium, you said there's really no real science behind this. Well, I think some effects of magnesium on shivering. And then I think magnesium may have some other potential benefits in post-arrest patients. It's been, you know, toyed with as a neuroprotective agent for decades. And then one of the realities of hypothermia is that there is a lot of magnesium wasting in patients who are maintained at 33 degrees centigrade for 24 hours. So what we found is that to, to keep normal magnesium, serum magnesium levels, we end up giving patients a lot more magnesium than we used to when we kept them normal thermic or let them become hyperthermic. So magnesium is something you're going to have to keep an eye on anyway in these patients. I do know of some European protocols where as soon as they start inducing hypothermia, they give four grams of magnesium to the patients intravenously during the induction phase, and they think that's serving a multitude of uh, benefits. Great. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about some of the major effects of hypothermia and relating to physiological. And I think we need to spend some time talking about electrolytes. Hypothermia generally induces an intracellular shift and tubular dysfunction leading to an increased renal excretion of electrolyte and can deplete magnesium, phosphorus, and potassium. And I think potassium is probably the major electrolyte. Can you give us more uh, insight to it? Yes, I think you sort of summarized it already, but there'll be a combination of intracellular shift of potassium and renal wasting of potassium. So when a patient is brought down to 33 degrees in general, there'll be a degree of hypokalemia. And so you want to keep the patient normal kalemic, but you also need to watch that closely. Make sure that you don't have a lot of potassium containing fluids that are running in when you start to rewarm the patient because at that point you can start to get hyperkalemia, which, you know, as we know, would can be dangerous for patients. Magnesium tends to be much more of a magnesium wasting from the kidney. And so to maintain normal magnesium levels, 
oftentimes these patients require uh, several magnesium infusions. And then the other major electrolyte issue is hyperglycemia. That's a result of insulin resistance at lower temperatures. And so we find that many patients who are not diabetic require a continuous insulin infusion, and we aren't shooting for tight glucose control. We're not looking for glucose levels of 80 to 110, but we're just looking for a level of 150 or so, and we will typically start an insulin infusion after we have two glucose levels that are over 200, and then we'll start an insulin infusion and titrate that to glucose level of under 180 or 160 or so. We actually do the exact same thing, and I think it's just to reemphasize a very important point. You mentioned that you know, you're not targeting glucose range of 80 to 110, but the literature has shown that create more more complication and more cases of hypoglycemia. We are targeting a range of 150. So my next question to you is, can we talk about some of the physiological aspects of hypothermia on the cardiovascular system? Sure. So I think the two biggest things that happen is that there is a decrease in cardiac output, and we'll get back to that a little bit, and there's a bradycardia that occurs, and those two things are linked, obviously, since stroke volume and heart rate will give you your cardiac output. But what we've seen is that the bradycardia that occurs is rarely clinically significant, even when it's down into the 30s or 40s, and In fact, if you're doing further investigation of these patients, either looking at seroechocardiograms or looking at uh, SCVO2 values, or if you do have a Swan-Ganz catheter and you're measuring some hemodynamic numbers from that, the balance between oxygen delivery and oxygen consumption is typically improved at 33 degrees. I think another really important thing to stress is that hypothermia environmental hypothermia where people drop down under 30 degrees and have moderate or even severe hypothermia is an arrhythmogenic episode or a arrhythmogenic trigger. But hypothermia therapeutically delivered at 33 degrees is actually uh, myocardial stabilizing therapy. So patients we we often get emails to our website or, or phone calls and it oh, you know, this patient, we cooled them to 33 degrees, and then they had another ventricular fibrillation arrest, and the doctor says it's because of the hypothermia. It's because this person just recently had a ventricular fibrillation arrest. I mean, these are sick patients, and you shouldn't rewarm someone who re-arrests. You should do ACLS and treat the arrest. And so uh, the heart is more stable at 33 degrees than it is at 37 degrees. But if you have over overshoot and your patient's down at 29 degrees, then that's a a totally different issue. And I'm very glad you brought that point because as, you know, some people tend to overshoot and they're going down to 30, 29, 28, and they're seeing all those arrhythmia, the reflex is, oh, they're not tolerating hypothermia and it's discontinued hypothermia. And in my institution, I've explained to people through education that this is not a side effect of hypothermia, but it's a side effect of overshooting our target temperature. 
and it's a physiological expected response and you know just rewarm them slowly to our target goal of 32 to 34 and i think that's very important yes certainly if someone has overshot you need to figure out why and why the feedback mechanisms on the machine aren't working so troubleshoot the machine as the first approach and then you know get them back to the right temperature and the vast majority of the cooling equipment available commercially should do that automatically. Just to link this a little bit to what we were talking about with paralytics, one of the reasons we decided to paralyze everyone is one of the more difficult clinical scenarios is when you don't paralyze someone and you get them down to 35 or 34, 8 or so, and they're shivering and shivering and shivering and you can't get their temperature down lower. We, when we first started our protocol, had a few patients that we then decided to paralyze and you just take away all their heat production and the machine can't bring them to the right temperature and they just plummet. And so we had a few patients that were at 34, five or so, couldn't get them cool, we paralyzed them. And then, you know, within 30 minutes, they're at 29 degrees. So I think the, the delayed paralysis in that situation is a much more dangerous approach than just, you know, taking control of, of their heat production from the get-go. And sorry to go back, but you were mentioning about the cardiac output. And I really think it's important that you talk about some of the effect that we've seen. I mean, the data that has been published out there that coronary perfusion is actually increased during hypothermia. Not, not really increased the perfusion, but it's really the reduction of the metabolic demands. Is this correct interpretation or is there? Yeah, I think that's exactly correct. I mean if you hypothesize that a patient typically would be at 37 degrees, every degree centigrade you go down or so is about an 8% reduction in, in metabolic consumption. And so, you know, you're down to a person who has about 65% of the metabolic consumption that they would have if they were maintained at normal thermia. The thing I will throw in there is that people will have ongoing metabolic consumption and increased oxygen needs if they're under-resuscitated. So a very important aspect of post-arrest care is the adequate resuscitation of these patients and adequate volume delivery. And one of the reasons that you really want to have a good sense of their hemodynamics is that, you know, a percentage of these patients will get post-arrest myocardial stunning and even though they had a normal EF before their arrest, and let's just say this wasn't an arrest from a large anterior wall MI or something where you're expecting to see a decreased left ventricular ejection fraction, but say a young 28-year-old kid who had a primary arrhythmogenic arrest, a percentage of them are going to have a significant drop in their ejection fraction 8 to 18 hours after their arrest or six hours after their arrest, somewhere in that six to 15, 20 hour range. And their EF may go down to 10%. And if you're doing nothing to monitor that and nothing to treat that, then that may produce a period of brain hypoperfusion that will negate all the benefits of your therapy. 
you know, the other important aspect of optimal resuscitation of these patients is when you start to rewarm them and they start to vasodilate, you want to have them on the right side of their volume resuscitation. If they're under resuscitated, when you start to rewarm them and then you rewarm them quickly and they vasodilate quickly, you can get a profoundly hypotensive patient. And that's a more difficult scenario than someone that you are controlling the hemodynamics of and that you're rewarming in a gradual fashion. Right. And just to remind the residents, during the induction phase, you're going to have a, I call it a cold diuresis. So their volume is going to, they're going to diurese themselves. And so you really have to keep a very close eye on the volume and either using CVP, either using ultrasound monitoring of the IVC, any, any monitoring technique that your institution are using, but you have to keep a close eye on their hemodynamic and their volume status. I think that's very, very important. And during the rewarming phase, we start seeing, you know, another shift of the fluid. So I think fluid is extremely important. Do you uh, have a CVP target? We do. You know, this all has to be put into context of the limitations of CVP. Though early in resuscitation, uh, especially, you know, in patients who are coming in de novo, I think CVP can be very helpful. We use a CVP target of typically 8 to 16 or so and try and keep it 12 to 16. But I, I think the real important point for residents and physicians in training to, to think about is that we use the CVP when we feel like it's helping us. And if we have a CVP that just seems to be producing noise, then we'll stop monitoring the CVP. And so you want to have data coming at your clinicians that is useful. And 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 that's it. Sometimes you'll have an intubated patient on no vasopressors. They have a mean arterial pressure of 82 and they're making a cc of urine per kilogram every hour and their CVP is five. I'm not going to give that person more fluid. I'm going to match their fluid losses and make sure that they stay happy with their CVP of five, but I'm not going to treat that number when everything else suggests to me that person is hemodynamically in good shape. Well, and that's very important is you have to look at the big picture. You have to look at all the information and the physiological response. You can't just close your eyes and just look at one number and just go by that one number. It's very important that we look at the big picture, like you said. One of the major side effects, I think, of hypothermia is the hematological effect, and especially on you know the clotting enzymes and on coagulopathy. You know, you, you mentioned that in the first podcast that active bleeding, non-compressible bleeding were actually contraindication, and that's because the therapies are actually gonna make them more coagulopathic. Correct. In certain cases, do you, let's say somebody comes with a, uh, I don't know, uh, hemoglobin of nine, we don't have a source, would you still cool them but stay below above 35? So there's different sort of expert opinions about how you can tweak it. You know, maybe this person you'll treat at 35 degrees. Someone just with a hemoglobin of nine who didn't have gross melanin and hadn't been having coffee ground emesis and there's no obvious source of bleeding, we would treat that person and just continue to watch them. We've successfully treated people who have come in 
with an INR of seven and we've treated their elevated INR from their excess Coumadin and we've treated them with hypothermia that we induced at the same time as we reversed their coagulopathy. I think you need to watch this. I think the coagulopathy that's induced by hypothermia is mild at 33 degrees. You know, one of the reasons that Sapper's group in Pittsburgh abandoned hypothermia in the 1960s was they saw a lot of bleeding. But, you know, as I said earlier, they were cooling down to 30 degrees centigrade and they were using primitive equipment and they had a lot of overshoot down to 28, 27 degrees centigrade. And yeah, those people developed some profound coagulopathy. But at 33 degrees, it's not that big a deal. And most of it can be treated. If you look at the the side effects profiles that were reported in the HACA study or, you know, look at the big databases like the hypothermia network registry that Nicholas Nielsen published in 2009, they showed very little incidence of major bleeding or transfusion demands. And in, in both of the randomized trials, there were some patients who got TPA, and there was no increased bleeding in the approximately 30 patients in the trials combined who got TPA compared to other groups. So uh, I think these are issues. You have to keep an eye on it. If someone develops massive life-threatening bleeding that can't be treated, then you may be pursuing rewarming in that patient, but these are rare events. And, you know, the main thing to focus on is that there's a lot of rare events that keep people from starting hypothermia protocols that don't come up in institutions that are doing a lot of hypothermia. So a lot of the concerns are obviously valid concerns, but they in real life practice rarely raise their ugly heads. Correct. And I, you know, I like to point out to actually one of the study that you guys did, the therapeutic hypothermia after cardiac arrest and clinical practices, the review and complication of recent experiences. And in your meta-analysis, you do show that the bleeding is almost negligible or uh, not reported. And so I don't think it's a contraindication. I think it's just something that we need to address. But I do want to touch to one point that seems to come back on each study is the rate of infection and the rate of sepsis. Yes. So I think that's a complicated question. I think that we don't have a real good sense of what the rate of infection, especially aspiration pneumonia, was in post-arrest patients in the normal thermia error. But obviously, there's micro-aspiration and just plain old aspiration during the period of cardiac arrest and chest compressions. So that's one issue. And then, you know, these are critically ill patients who are getting multiply instrumented Foley catheters long-term vents in some of them. So there's several other risk factors for infection. And then there's, to me, the more interesting sepsis-like syndrome that's part of ischemia and reperfusion injury. So there, when someone has ischemia and then reperfusion, many of the same inflammatory markers, IL-1, IL-6, TNF-alpha, IL-10, the in pro and anti-inflammatory factors that are part of the sepsis syndrome when someone has a bacterial or less often a viral infection are triggered by reperfusion as well. So there was a great study from Adri and colleagues over in Paris where they measured the classic sepsis inflammatory markers in post-arrest patients and showed a very similar inflammatory pattern in post-arrest patients. So it can be real hard to know, does this person have sepsis from an organism? 
or do they just have a sepsis-like response from ischemia reperfusion? And the one other thing I'll add to that is, you know, when a person's had a long enough period of time from collapse to return of spontaneous circulation, they have had an extended period of intestinal mesenteric hypoperfusion. And the same study from Adri showed uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 45% of patients had endotoxin in their blood 48 hours after their cardiac arrest. And that's because of increased translocation of endotoxin. So the whole question of infection, very complicated post-arrest. I think you need to watch these patients. You need to monitor them. You need to monitor whether they're having increased heat production. Is the water temperature on your cooling device going down as a sign that maybe they're having infection? They need to have serial chest x-rays. Their urine needs to be looked at. Sometimes they need, need blood cultures. And most of the infections these patients get are completely treatable. And that's the really important point. Most patients don't die from post-cardiac arrest sepsis. Most patients die from untreatable post-cardiac arrest neurological injury. And the vast majority of patients who have had a true sepsis episode with positive blood cultures or obvious chest x-ray findings post-arrest have been treatable. And that hasn't been the fundamental issue that led to their survival or their death. No, I agree. I agree 100 percent. And I I guess my question was uh, poorly worded, but I have a very low threshold to start antibiotic, and I think it's a reversible cause, and that's why my threshold to start antibiotic is so is so low. Completely agree, and there's lots of good hypothermia protocols around the world where they give people three days of prophylactic antibiotics because they believe that, you know, there's a high incidence of aspiration pneumonia and that should be treated. We don't do that. We actually started out doing that when we first started our protocol and for, you know, essentially random reasons moved away from it. Wait, no, we don't do that either. We uh, blood culture every patient that comes in with chest x-ray, urine culture, and then we do repeat the chest x-ray every 12 hours. If we see any sign of infection, then we'll start treating aggressively. I just want to take two more questions. One of the last question is in a rewarming phase. Now, there's been talk about, you know, rewarming phase, we have to rewarm the patient slowly. Some people are using the number 0.25 per hour. Some people are using 0.33 cc's per hour. Does it make a difference? I just say keep the patient rewarmed slowly and whatever my machine rewarm us at 0.33 cc's per hour. Yeah, another good question. I don't think there's a lot of really solid data to say, you know, 0.5 degrees centigrade per hour is better than one centigrade per hour versus 0.33. But I think the the fundamental concept here is that you want to rewarm in a controlled fashion and that you want to be able to stay on top of the hemodynamics and the electrolytes during that rewarming phase. If you go too quick, it's very hard to stay on top of those. And then the other fundamental thing that links in here is, you know, we talked about how maybe if you could cool someone intra arrest, you could prevent some of the injury from ischemia. So there's that injury during the arrest itself. And then there's this first phase of reperfusion injury that maybe only lasts for 30 minutes or so after an arrest. And then what we're really treating with hypothermia is this secondary phase of reperfusion injury. And that starts a few hours after arrest, but animal data would suggest that that goes on for five, six, seven days. 
And so the other reason for a slower rewarming phase is longer exposure to a therapy that will protect the brain. And, you know, in fact, in Japan, for the residents who don't know it or haven't read some of the Japanese studies, the Japanese have been some of the real pioneers of both hypothermia and other aspects, including emergency cardiopulmonary bypass for post-arrest patients or intra-arrest patients. And in many centers in Japan, they will treat the patient with 24 or even 36 hours of hypothermia at 33 degrees, and then they'll rewarm them to 35 and keep them there for another 24 hours because they feel like that's giving the person a longer exposure to hypothermia and a longer period for brain recovery. So those are the two reasons, control the rewarming phase from an electrolyte and hemodynamic perspective, and then give the person the longest exposure to the therapy. Great. And I guess as a departing question, what do you see the future? I see the future of hypothermia. We're going to start seeing a lot more indication or application, should I say? So great question. I wish I had a crystal ball. So I think there's a question of what's the future of hypothermia within post-arrest patients, so anoxic encephalopathy, and then what are the other applications for it? I think the real future, and I'll tie this to maybe the one question we didn't talk about, which is predicting neurologic outcome. You know, predicting neurologic outcome is difficult, and if the person wakes up and starts to follow commands, it's easy. It's harder when the person has ongoing brain injury. And so the way that we're going to really learn how to predict neurologic outcome is a sort of multimodal approach that might combine imaging studies such as CT or MRI with continuous EEG findings and with some serum markers. But the reason I bring this up in the context of the future of hypothermia for post-arrest patients is the the real answer to how much hypothermia a patient needs is the amount that will treat their injury. So what I see as the future of hypothermia is that at 24 hours of cooling, instead of rewarming patients, we will do some battery of tests that will tell us this patient's ready to be rewarmed or this patient needs more therapy. And then if they need more therapy, we'll continue with more hypothermia. And in that context, we may also be able to, during the induction phase, do some battery of tests that says, you know, this person needs 35 degrees for 24 hours, or this person would benefit from a a lower target temperature. So within cardiac arrest, I think that's the future, along with sorting out the questions of arrest from non-shockable rhythm, so PEA or asystole arrest, and translating this to in-hospital arrest. As far as hypothermia for other indications, I think it's a fascinating, wide-open topic. I think you can argue until you're blue in the face about the outcomes of traumatic brain injury patients treated with hypothermia. You can argue that the studies that have been done are sufficient to show it doesn't work. You can argue that it should be part of a multimodal approach to people with traumatic brain injury. I think the most intriguing future for hypothermia is in two areas. One is cooling patients down before you open a blocked coronary artery, so hypothermia prior to percutaneous coronary intervention delivered in a way that you don't affect the door to balloon times. And I think the other area is whether either 
maintained normothermia or in fact true hypothermia may be beneficial to patients with severe septic shock, especially vasopressor dependent septic shock. And there was that great study by Shortgen, S-C-H-O-R-T-G-E-N, that was in AJRCCM last year where they randomized patients to maintain normal thermia versus regular temperature management in vasopressor-dependent septic shock and showed improved times to getting off vasopressors with the hypothermia. So I think that's really going to be the area that I hope this heads in. And obviously, there's more septic shock patients than post-arrest patients that could be treated and benefit. Now, there's actually right now an ongoing trial in Sweden of exactly what you said of a, regarding percutaneous coronary artery reperfusion, they're actually cooling, you know, awake patient to target temperature of below 35 before they're doing PCI. And it'll be interesting to see the results. Right. It's a great area for it because it's exactly ischemia and reperfusion injury. You know, the cells that are distal to that blockage are ischemic. And then when you open up that blockage, those cells get reperfusion. And so it's like a classic micro cosm of what we're doing to the patient as a whole when we treat post-arrest patients. Well, number one, I want to say thank you very much to Dr. Gaiazzi for being here with us today. I encourage our listener who wants more information to go on the University of Penn website, especially the resuscitation and go to hypothermia. There's lots of information. They have lots of protocol. But I strongly recommend also any institution who are not doing hypothermia to join the hypothermia training, the two-day workshop that University of Penn is putting together. I haven't had the pleasure of going there, and David did not pay me to say this, uh, <laughs> but University of Penn has been really the leader in America on hypothermia, and you're really getting the experts. So David, thank you so much for your time. Well, David, thank you for asking me. And, you know, you're very generous. I would say there are many leaders of hypothermia in the country, and we're happy to be one of the centers that's doing that. But, you know, there's lots of great work going on at several institutions around the country, and some of those are not academic centers that publish a lot. There's really high-quality care being delivered at all different kinds of hospitals in America. And, you know, I'd just like to take this chance, any of those people that are listening, we really acknowledge that, and the families whose family members have been treated appreciate that. So I'd just like to say that before we close. Well, yeah, that's why we do this. We do this for our patients and for them and their families. Thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed part two of this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. For more information about AAEM and to access other critical care podcasts, please visit our website, www.aaem.org. While you're there, be sure to check out the AAEM blog, part of AAEM Connect, where you can leave comments and engage in a conversation around the issues discussed in this podcast. Join us again next month as Dr. Farsi will discuss more issues of relevance for emergency physicians.